Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Turn to Acts chapter 2 this morning. Let's pick up where we left off last week in the Peter uh, Sermon of Peter at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. This morning, once you have found Acts chapter 2 in the 36th verse of that chapter, if you'd be so kind as to stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 36. Starting in verse 36, it reads like this. Let, uh, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together And had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as every as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Father, this morning you have stirred our hearts. You've stirred our hearts through our time together, through our singing to you, through the song that was just sung, Father. You have just wrapped your arms around us and reminded us that you are God and you have saved us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And now, Father, let us turn our hearts, our attention to your word and see how that message was first proclaimed at Pentecost by Peter, post-resurrection Jesus. And this morning, Father, I ask that you do that by making very little of me. And very much of you as you speak to our hearts this morning. It's in the name of the word, your son, Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We've been looking at Peter's sermon at the day of Pentecost, how he was an example to those who were gathered there, how the Holy Spirit had had drawn those people in the city together because they had heard that sound of the mighty Russian wind with no evidence of that wind. And, and they had seen those, uh, these uh, disciples, these apostles being filled with the Holy Spirit, 120 or so in that upper room by the tongues of fire that came and rested on them. And, and we looked at how Peter had stood. He had stood with those 11, those 11 or around him and exposited scripture to explain who Jesus is. He shouldn't explain this to those who had gathered. He talked about his life, if you remember. He talked about his life with the miracles, the wonders and signs that were done to prove that he was God and to point those people to God and to prove to them that he was this Messiah. He was this Messiah that they had been waiting on. Peter also talked about his death, if you remember. He talked about his death, how those who were standing there before him were the ones who killed Jesus. How And and how those that were there should have uh, been shocked that they'd even taken part in this 
killing of their long-awaited Messiah. So he talked about his life. He talked about his death. He, he even talked to them about his resurrection. For if you remember, he said to them, death can't hold Jesus. Death, death can't hold him. As a matter of fact, Jesus has victory over death. And we looked at those Old Testament scriptures that he used to exposit to him, to explain that to him. And how one day those who were enemies, he says there in those scriptures, enemies of Jesus would become his footstools. That's a sign of judgment. That's a sign of judgment. It's, he was speaking that. And, and, and this would have cut them. This would have cut them to the bone. Because keep in mind, that group that was standing there was awaiting this Messiah to come. And now they've just been told that the one that they killed on a cross was the Messiah. And that that Messiah had come back to life. And one day he would judge his enemies. Who do you think they thought in their heart the enemies were? <laughs> them. <laughs> they stood there condemned by the word. They certainly would have had fear at the judgment of God on those who killed the Messiah. Peter had taken them from where they were. <laughs> he had taken them from where they were on a journey through who Jesus is down the path that they had chosen when they had denied Jesus as the Messiah. And he stood them right there, right there looking the Messiah face to face. Now what was Peter to do? What else is left to be said? What else is left to be told to them? Peter then moves, having been the example, moves from the exposition of the word, and he moves to the exhortation of the people, which we'll look at today. Many of us say that we share the gospel. Many of us say that we share the gospel sometimes every day. It's even said that the gospel should be seen, that the gospel should be seen in our lives every day. And that fact is true. The gospel message should come out in your life every day. I read a text message from a group of people that spent time with the deacon body yesterday as they built a ramp. And what was the essence of the text message? They saw Jesus Christ to those men. The gospel. The gospel message should come out in our life every day. That, that is a fact. But you know what? There is a difference in showing the gospel and sharing the gospel. There is a world of difference in showing the gospel and sharing the gospel. I'm sure that there are some here today that would say that they came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because there was some godly example of, of Jesus Christ in someone's life. Maybe it was a mom or a dad. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a friend or a co-worker. And it's true that living a Christ-like life in front of others may lead them to Christ. That is true. But it's also true, it's also true that seeing Jesus, that seeing Jesus, a living Christ, in front of them may lead them, but that seeing your Christ-like life will not save them. Just seeing you live like Christ will not save them. It's not just showing them Jesus Christ. It's not just showing. In fact, there's only one way to be saved. Mom and dad can't do it. This preacher can't do it for you. Your Sunday school teacher can't do it. Your friends, your neighbors, all the preachers on TV in the world can't do it. The books you read cannot save you. You can only be saved when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Not seeing someone who's come to faith in Jesus Christ. And how is it that you come to faith in Jesus Christ? It may help if you have a Christ-like example to follow. It, it may help if you grow up in a Christian home. But that's not the way. That's not the way. No, the Bible's clear how you come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
It says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. There's only one way. There's only one way to come to Christ. Our faith is in the risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that comes from the truth of God's Word. The faith in Jesus Christ comes from the truth of God's Word, and it it comes from hearing that Word and being convicted in our hearts by that Word and then responding to that Word in our lives. Many Christians today talk about Jesus. They talk about how great their church is. They talk about their preacher, some in a good way, some in a bad way. Uh, they, they talk about their Bible study groups or their Sunday schools. They, they tell others about this Jesus in their life. But where we often, where we often fall short is exactly where Peter finds himself in this message. See, oftentimes the exhortation of the one who we're talking to is left out. The exhortation. We're we're scared to tell them that they must respond to what we've just said. And we don't tell them even how to respond to the word of Christ. And by not giving them, by not giving them an action to what we've just explained to them, we failed to really even give them the gospel. We've given them a piece. We've given them a piece of the gospel. Notice the question. Notice the question in the people's mind after Peter had told them about Jesus. After Peter had told them about Jesus. See, in verse 36, Peter tells them that this is Jesus whom they had killed, that he's both Lord and Christ, and that's put in place by God. He he is the Messiah that they've been waiting on. He is the supreme authority over everything. And Peter tells them that it is time that all of Israel, he says, all the house of Israel that has been waiting on this promised Messiah, that they wake up and see this Jesus for who he really is. They wake up and see, and he summarizes that entire message that is just preached in that one verse in 36. In 36, he summarizes. And, and what is the repeat? people's response in 37 it says now when they heard this they were cut to the heart they were cut to the heart it says it says that they were cut to the heart this word translated cut or some of your versions may say pierced is only used here in the new testament believe it or not and it's a word that means to be suddenly stabbed to be suddenly stabbed to be pierced unexpectedly And what was it that had unexpectedly cut their heart, stabbed their heart, pierced their heart? There are four things. The first is that the long-awaited Messiah had been killed. Keep in mind, they looked forward for generations for a coming Messiah. And now they've just stood and heard Peter say the coming Messiah that you've been waiting on has been killed. They've been looking for him a long time, and now they hear that he was dead. That would have been an unexpected piercing. The second thing that, that, that pierced their heart is that they learned that they were the ones that killed him. Here they had been spending all of their life trying to keep the law and looking forward to this Messiah. And now they sat on the stool with the judge next to him and a prosecutor and attorney saying, You're the one. You're the one. Who killed him? What an unexpected announcement. They'd been a part of killing the Messiah. You know, we looked a few weeks ago. We're just as guilty as they are. For it was our sin that nailed him to the cross. 
So the second thing that, that cut to their heart was the fact that they were part of it. The third thing is that the enemies of this now living Messiah were going to be facing a judgment. See, they realized, hold on a second, this Messiah is dead. We did it. And Peter just said that his enemies were going to become his footstools, which was a Hebrewism for they were going to be judged. This, this Messiah that he killed was now alive, and anyone who was his enemy was not going to be his footstool. You could imagine the piercing of the heart. You could imagine the piercing of the heart. But then the fourth thing, the fourth thing that really rocked their world and cut deepest to their heart, the fourth thing was the realization that what they had done, they could not undo. What they had done, they could not undo. They were powerless to set right what they had set wrong. See, sometimes we don't get it. We sin against a holy God and we think there's something we can do, something we can say, something we can give to set that right. No. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can give. There's nothing you can say to set that right can only be set right by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and continue to trust in the fact that God will forgive through that same blood that washed you white as snow, even when you stumble as one of His children. See, there's no amount of effort, no amount of work, no amount of giving that can set right that which is wrong which is sin in our lives. And they realized the thing that cut deepest in their heart was to realize they, they stand there, they get the message, they understand what's being said, but their question was, now what do we do? What do we do? We get it. We get it. He was the Messiah. We get it that he died. He's risen again. We get it that we did it. We get it. There's going to be a judgment. Well, Peter, Peter, what can we do? How can we make it right? How can we get out from under this guilt of our sin? How can we avoid the judgment? How can we avoid the judgment of God? See, when you hear the Word of God preached, when you read the Word of God and the Holy Spirit speaks into your heart, there is only one right response. <laughs> what shall I do? What shall I do? It's not reading for intellectual knowledge. It's not reading so that you can say, I've read through all of the books of the Bible in the course of a year. That's not it. If you read one verse over and over every day for 365 days and your response at the end of that one verse is, God, what shall I do in response to this? You have accomplished what God wants you to accomplish. Because the word is there to divide from Mary. It is there to, to cut the heart, to bring out that sin in your life. It is there to let you know that you are under the guilt of sin. But there is a way out. There is a way out. And Peter does what we often fail to do. And he does it there in verse 38. He does it. After they ask the question, what shall we do? Peter says this in verse 38. Peter said to them, repent. Repent. What does it mean to repent? Let's start with what it doesn't mean. Let's start with what it doesn't mean. It's not adding Jesus to the other things that make your life better. It's not walking up to the buffet. It's, I'll have two of these, one of these, one of those, and I'll take Jesus to make sure everything works out okay. That's not repentance. 
That's right. It's not continuing to do the things you've always done, but saying you've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is not repentance. It's, it's not even trying to be a better person. That's not repentance. It's not even just a fear of the consequences of your sin. <laughs> that is not repentance. No, repentance is turning away from something to something else. And godly repentance is the turning away from a life lived with you as the Lord and Savior and turning to the only one who is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's relinquishing the reins of all that it is in your life over to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, it's denying self and it's a proclaiming of Jesus Christ as your Lord. It is turning from sin and turning to righteousness. It is a complete change of the heart. And for those hearing Peter, for those hearing Peter and for us, it's a major change in our lives. There should be evidence of repentance in your life. People should be able to see that there's been a change. It's been said that False repentance dreads the consequences of sin. True repentance dreads sin itself. You see the difference? False repentance dreads the consequences of sin. Godly, true repentance dreads sin itself. There are many people that will confess to something they've done in their life when they find out they're going to be exposed. That's dreading the consequences. A person who knows that no one knows anything, yet their heart is broken over that which they have done and are willing to confess that, that's true repentance. And what false repentance is, is a person coming to God in hopes of keeping something covered up, in hopes of getting rid of the guilt, but not really dreading sin, just dreading the consequence. <laughs> True repentance comes from a hatred of what sin really is. And what is sin? It's an affront to God. It's an insult to a holy God. See, when you really understand that sin is not a mistake that you've made in your life, it's an affront to a holy God. It's such a big deal to him that his son died upon a tree to forgive it. It's not just a boo-boo in life. See, knowing that God hates sin and that sin is evil should motivate a truly repentant person to repent or forsake sin. See, a truly repentant person, when he understands the gravity of that sin in his life, should willingly forsake sin. Because he loves God more than he loves the sin. So true repentance is forsaking sin and committing to Jesus Christ. True repentance will cause a change in a person's heart and a person's life. How do we apply that to our life? Do people see the change in your heart and life? Can they look at you? Can they, can they see your actions? Can they spend time with you on a Saturday for four or five hours and their response be, they acted like Christ. Can they see it? If they can't, you read between the lines. 
See, true repentance changes everything about you, and it starts in the heart. In the heart. He then goes on to say in that, that verse 38, he says, first he tells him, he says, okay, you've asked. Men and brethren, what shall we do? He goes on to say, repent. Then he says, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Why is it important for them to be baptized? Why is it important? It's the same reason it's important for us to be baptized. Jesus doesn't want any secret disciples. He's not getting together a band of folks to hide in a closet and one day pull them out. It's not his object. That's not his object. Jesus never hid. Jesus never hid from anything. Yes, he would walk away from things at times, but he never hid from anything. He was very public. He even hung upon a cross and died publicly. On the city street, outside of the city gate, naked, on a cross, for you. The one thing Jesus is not looking for is someone to be a Christian and hide in a closet till it's time to come out. That, that's, that's not his object. He's not looking for, he's not looking for those that are going to be secret disciples. In fact, what Peter's saying here is exactly what Jesus said in Luke. In two places in Luke. Look at Luke 14 with me really fast. I'll squeeze this in even though I don't have time. Luke 14. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Verse 25. This section down to the end of the chapter talks about what it what it what a disciple is. What is discipleship? He says this in verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intended to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest... After he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, cannot be my disciple. I really don't think you can get much clearer than that. I really don't think you can get much clearer than that at what it takes to be a disciple. Jesus makes it a point to say that being a disciple of his was not going to be easy. The only way you can make being a disciple of his easy is if you think you can be a secret disciple. If you're truly going to be a disciple, life's going to be tough. Life's going to be tough. He says that it will cost you all that you love. He says maybe your family, maybe your friends, maybe even your life. And he, and he says it's going to be tough because you're going to have to pick up your cross. So remember, the cross was an instrument of death. He's not saying you were going to have to work hard. No, he says you're going to have to pick up your cross, the instrument of death. It's the picture he's painting here. He says, we're, we're going to have to die to self. How difficult is dying to self? Don't raise your hand, but did anybody start a diet for their New Year's resolution? How's that going? It's a little tough to die to self, isn't it? You, you know what sugar does to me when I eat it. You know it makes me feel horrible. 
Sometimes Wendy will find me laying on the floor after a candy bar, and she doesn't know whether to call it a rescue squad or just say, he's a fool, he shouldn't have eaten it. Most times she says, he's a fool, he shouldn't have eaten it. <laughs> but ask Wendy what's next to my bed right now at night, right now. There is not just a little bag, but a big bag of Hershey's Kisses. Guess what I did last night while I was laying in bed? <laughs> me and Andrew were laying in bed. He was sleeping. I was popping Hershey Kisses last night. <laughs> You know why? It is tough. Self's a tough thing, man. You know, I just wanted something sweet. Just one thing sweet led to, I won't even say it because you all had to gather around me and lay hands on me and pray. I think I ate half the bag last night. Half the bag. Dying to self is difficult. Dying to self. But he says it's going to be tough or you're going to pick up a cross and you're going to have to die to self. He said that becoming a Christian should come with understanding. That being a Christian should come with understanding. Not coming in with this dumb, blind faith, but coming in understanding what it takes. He says, if you're going to build a tower, you're going to go to war. Aren't you going to stop and say, do I have what it takes to finish this? Do I have what it takes to complete? Do I know what the full picture of this is? He said to become a Christian, you should know what it takes. Newsflash church. If you're telling people that they can come to know Jesus Christ and life gets good and everything's better, you're lying. You're lying. You better tell them the truth. You better tell them the truth that this old world is going to try to drag them back at every step. But if they'll hold on to Jesus Christ at the end of the day, as I told the children, you will see him for who he is and you will be like him. And every torture moment, every hard step, everything you lost will pale in comparison to seeing your Savior face to face. See, if you're telling them becoming a Christian makes you wealthy, healthy, and fine, you're lying to them. You're lying to them. Jesus said, no, it's going to cost you everything. You're going to pick up your cross. You're going to die to self. Your family may hate you. He said, you do it with understanding everything that it takes to do it. You do it with a clear conscience, knowing that you're not just in it for the short haul, that it is a long journey. He even says we must be willing to forsake everything. That we have everything, or as he puts it, if you do not forsake all, you cannot be my disciple. He didn't say you may make it. He didn't say there's a chance. He said, cannot. You know the best translation of that word in the Greek for cannot? Cannot. There is no way to twist it. He said, no, you hold back on me. You're not mine. That's the bottom line of the gospel. That's the bottom line of the gospel message. He says, you have to. You will have to. You will have to give up all things. How do we know that? His, his message, very quickly, just a couple of pages over in the 18th chapter. We won't read this. You can go home and read it. But in the 18th chapter of Luke, he tells this other story. It's a story where he bumps into a fellow that uh, we know as the rich young ruler. It's Luke 18, and it starts in the 18th verse and works its way down all the way through uh, the 27th verse or so of the chapter. For sake of time, I won't read it. You read it. You know the story. We see Jesus and the rich young ruler, and they're having this discussion. They're having this discussion. It sounds awful familiar, awfully familiar to the discussion going on with Peter in Acts. It sounds real familiar because in that 18th verse it says, Now a certain young ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? See the question? It's the same question that we're asking Peter in Acts. What can I do to have this? What? My, what how do I pitch in? What's my part? 
You know the story? Jesus goes on to say, hey, you know what? I'll tell you what. I think it's about the 20th verse. He looks at him and says, you know all the commandments, right? You're a good guy. You've been a really good fellow. You know all the commandments. I'll tell you what. Why don't you just go keep those? That's what he says. Why don't you go keep those? What does the rich ruler do? The ruler bows up his chest, puts his hands on his hips. He looks Jesus in the eye. And you know what he says? I got that covered. I got that covered, boy. I've kept them things. I've been on top of them since day one. I got that covered. He says, man, I'm, I'm in. I'm in like Flynn. I'm like gravy on a biscuit. I got this thing covered. Then Jesus goes straight for the heart. Verse 22, he says, you know what? Now that I think about it, there is one thing that's lacking. There's, there's one thing lacking a pious, rich, young ruler who has it all covered. There's one thing lacking in your being one of my disciples. He says you're to sell everything you've got. You're to give it to the poor. And you're to follow me. What he is not saying, hear me, what he is not saying is that you can't have money and be a Christian. That's a twist of scripture that is not there. (laughs) He's not saying you can't have money and be a disciple. What he is saying is that money can't have you and you be a disciple. It's a world of difference. World of difference. He's saying that if money has you, (laughs) there's no chance. He says nothing other than Jesus can have you and you be a disciple. And those who heard Jesus say this, those who heard Jesus say this said, how in the world then can anybody be saved? And in the 27th verse, he says one of the most beautiful statements, one I lean on all the time. (laughs) Things that are impossible with men are possible with God. It takes a miracle of God to become one of his disciples and to forsake all things and follow him. It's nothing man can do apart from God. That's what he's saying. He said, yeah, I know it's tough. Yeah, I know it'll be tough to give up family. Yeah, I know it'll be tough to pick up a cross. Yeah, I know it's tough to sell all you've got and give it away. I I understand that. And what's impossible for you to do in the heart that you have for the things that you've gained and for all the comforts of home, in that heart you can't do it. But you know, I know somebody that can. It's God. And isn't that the point? Isn't that the point? He's saying that it's possible. God can and God will be your all in all in Christ Jesus. You will not need anything else but Jesus. God says he will supply all of your needs. God will look after you abundantly. God will give you joy that comes from knowing his son Jesus Christ when all else brings you sorrow. So Peter tells them that they must repent and be baptized, it says in verse 38. And then he says something that's really brought some trepidation for some folks because he says, for the remission of sins. For the remission of sins. And very quickly, I don't have time to flesh it out. I'm just going to throw it at you. You can catch me in the corner. I'll explain it to you later. He says, for the remission of sins. This has caused some to believe that salvation comes through baptism. Hence, that's why they baptize children at birth. That's the point. Salvation comes through baptism. Salvation comes through, and they use this. Yet, yet we know from the whole of Scripture that baptism does not save. So then why does he say for the remission of sins? Again, you have to understand what the word for means. 
There's many possibilities. The word there is used in the, the Greek is actually ice. E-I-S is the word ice. That, that word can mean a couple of different things. It can mean uh, for the purpose of, which is the way most people take that verse. It can also mean because of, and for can also mean on the occasion of. We're getting together for someone's birthday, the occasion of someone's birthday. We're, we're doing this because something has happened is another way to be used. Well, when you keep the whole of the teaching of, of uh, baptism and scripture together, what do you always see comes first? Salvation through repentance. That's saving faith. Then what follows? Baptism because of the remission of sins. You see it in a chariot on a road when one jumps in and explains the scripture and they pass a puddle. He says, hey, now that I understand what keeps me from being baptized because I've been forgiven of sins. If baptism saved, Jesus owes the man on the cross an apology. Because he looked him in the eye and said, today you will be with me in paradise. And I'll guarantee you that it didn't say, time out, take him off the cross. We need to baptize him and then put him back on and we're going to kill him. Jesus looked him in the eye and said, today you will be with me in paradise. Where's paradise? wherever Jesus is, and to get to where Jesus is, you must be saved. That one scripture alone shoots that down. <laughs> baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. Bag baptism takes what is secret between you and God and displays it to the world for God's glory. See, Jesus doesn't want secret disciples. He wants that which has taken place between you and him, his working in your life, to be displayed to the world. How is he said to do that? Be baptized because of the remission of sins. Peter goes on very quickly in verse 38 and says this to them. He says, okay, you're going to repent. You need to repent. Then you need to be baptized. And then there's something special. There's this benefit of salvation. It says, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. He says, the Holy Spirit that has even brought you to stand here before me to hear this message, because remember how they came? The Holy Spirit showed up at Pentecost. And the amazement of what had happened brought them to the place to hear the gospel. He says, this Holy Spirit that has come to dwell in us will come to dwell in you at the moment of salvation. And not just you. Not just you who I'm looking at, who he was looking at. That promise is made to the next generation. At the next generation. It's not a promise just for those that were standing there. As a matter of fact, we know that because he says, those that who are far off. Who are the ones that were afar off from the group that was gathered? The Gentiles. Because the Jews were in town. The Jews were in town for the feast. They were the ones standing before him. He says, those who are afar off that you can't even imagine. Because they didn't know anything about a Messiah as far as you were concerned. They didn't keep the Jewish tradition. They didn't keep the laws. Guess what? It's not only for your children. It's for those that are afar off, those Gentiles. Peter's really giving it to him good. <laughs> Peter's, Peter's pulled no punches. <laughs> He's cut straight to the heart. Verse 40 tells us he didn't stop there. Says he didn't stop there. Says he, he continued to testify. Uh, he continued to exhort them with many words. He says, be saved from this perverse generation. 
After all that he said to them, after all that he's, after they had asked all those things about what should we do, after he invites them to do it, he says, be saved. Be saved. We need to be sure when we share the gospel that we tell the person how to be saved through Jesus Christ. We also need to be sure we invite the person to be saved. Oftentimes we stop with the why you should and how it is that you're saved. And we walk away leaving them wondering, what shall we do? What shall we do? See, it tells us what the response is. It tells us what the response is. Go home and read 40 through 47. I'm already out of time. 41 through 47. Let me summarize it for you very quickly. He says that 3,000 repented and were baptized. 3,000. 3,000 came to understand that they were sinners. 3,000 believed that God loved them so much that he sent Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, to die on a cross for their sin. 3,000 confessed with their mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believed that God had raised him from the dead. 3,000 turned from a life of sin and were baptized as an outward sign of what God had done in their heart through Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. 3,000 lined up at the baptism. Peter preached the whole truth without reservation, telling the whole story, exhorting them to respond. And what happened? 3,000 lined up. You may say that's a large number, not when there's two and a half million people in town, but it's still pretty awesome. Still pretty awesome. How did it change your life? It goes on to say they continued steadfastly in the doctrine and fellowship. They didn't try to recreate the wheel. They didn't come up with some new idea. They didn't come up with a new gospel, a new way to sing, a new way to preach, a new way to dress. It says they grabbed a hold of the doctrine that they had learned from those apostles, and then they spent time together in that doctrine. They ate together. They prayed together. They sold their possessions to help others in need. They worshiped together daily. They spent time in each other's homes. They were joyful. They praised God for the good and the bad, and they were favored by the people, it says. And how did God respond? It tells us in that last verse of that section, verse 47, it says the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. God was faithful and his word is effective. How was his word effective? It was effective in the example from the word. And that's Peter and the Holy Spirit were the example It's effective in the exposition of the word by Peter when he took scripture and explained their position before a holy God. And it was effective in the exhortation to the people, the exhortation to the people, that they respond to the message. Are we actively sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the glory of God? Are you actively involved in the sharing of that gospel message? Are we being an example that draws people to God? Or are we using Scripture to explain to them who this Jesus is and that it was their sin that nailed Him to a cross? Are we calling people to repent and telling them they need to be baptized? Are we asking them to be saved? See, it's time the church takes the gospel message it holds so firmly to and tells the whole story. The whole story. That if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're lost. That God loved you so much, He sent His only begotten Son to die on a cross for their sins. 
that they must confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, that they must be baptized. There is a response. Don't stop short of exhorting the ones you're sharing the gospel with to come to know your son, your Savior, Jesus Christ, as their Savior. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.